The job of journalists, wherever they are, be it Britain or Beijing, isn't to celebrate and champion the successes, but it's to look and hold power to account. The BBC has obtained rare footage from inside China's secretive system of mass incarceration in the far western region of Xinjiang. The reporting of journalists like the BBC's John Sudworth has revealed the scale and severity of the Chinese government's large network of detention camps, in which more than a million Uyghurs and other minorities are thought to have been detained. Hundreds of thousands of people from ethnic minorities, including the Uyghur community, are being forced by the Chinese authorities to pick cotton. And in the last couple of weeks, in addition to the heavy restrictions already placed on foreign journalists, China has a new tactic labelling independent coverage as fake news. The BBC's coverage of Xinjiang came under heavy criticism after it reported on Wednesday that women in internment camps for ethnic Uyghurs and other Muslims in the region were subject to rape and torture. Welcome to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley, and for this episode, I spoke to John Sudworth, who had just arrived in Wuhan to report on the latest efforts by international experts investigating the origins of COVID-19. I wanted to know what it's like to be a journalist in China at present, and I began by asking John to explain how his time there had begun. I arrived in China in 2012 uh, and began the the Shanghai reporter's job. We have an office in Shanghai and uh, I've been here ever since, uh, moving to, to Beijing in 2015 to take, take over the Beijing reporting post. But my interest in China goes back much further. I came here to do a, an intensive language course in uh, 2003, 2004. And, and I mean, if you ask me why I did that, I mean, I think at that time I was already with the BBC. I was looking um, for the possibility of, of opportunities to move into the foreign field. It's obviously, a, a, you know, it's a crowded market. It's not easy to break into it. And I could see and sense from my own reading uh, how important China was becoming and was likely uh, that, you know, that, that sense was only likely to increase. Um, so it felt to me like a, like a very good furrow to, 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 to be ploughing at that stage. It was, it was, you know, a few years before the Olympics, of course, so I did that, and I and I did it. I did it also partly because I've never spoken a, a. I'd never really managed to speak a foreign language, and I and I was sort of very interested and keen to something attracted to me about the idea of trying to learn Chinese. I have to say that that project itself has ne- has never quite uh, come to fruition in the way that I would like, but it got me started and it got me hooked on China as a country. I came, you know, part of the the intensive course was living with a Chinese family uh, in Beijing. Uh, so you know, very sort of tangible uh, sort of sense of China from the inside and I, 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 I fell in love with it. Uh, interestingly, it, 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 it didn't immediately get me to China. Um, I started applying for foreign jobs. I think actually having, you know, a, a little bit of something extra to, to bring to those interviews at that stage helped, and, uh, but it didn't help me enough to get, to get me a, a reporting job in China straight away. I actually began in South Asia in Delhi and Bangladesh, and then eventually uh, got my first sort of really sort of full-time BBC posting in in South Korea. And of course, from South Korea, the whole China story started to come much more into sharper focus. uh, And the rest, as they say, is history. So, John, what do you enjoy most about being a reporter in China? What kind of stories are there in China that you just couldn't, wouldn't come across in in other countries? Um, (laughs) 
Uh, I mean, in, in a nutshell, all of them. Obviously, uh, that inkling, that, that sort of instinct, uh, and of course I wasn't unique, it was, it was no great insight to, to realise in 2003, 2004 that China was going to be important. But it is truer today than it has ever been, at least in our lifetimes, um, in our grandparents' lifetimes. And it matters so much. China's rise, economically, politically, culturally, is the story of our age. And to be here at the heart of it, to be able to tell our audiences why that matters and the ways in which it is going to impact on, on their lives is, for me... Um, the best reporting job on the on the planet and uh, and it's a real privilege I think to be here and of course there's the other side of that Ian as well which is you know uh, in a sort of a, a rather selfish kind of way it's not easy to get into China to report I mean you know clearly China is not uh, falling over itself to let foreign journalists in here it is not easy to get temporary reporting visas in fact it's not that easy anymore to, to get normal reporting visas for resident journalists you know, so you find yourself at the heart of this extraordinary story, but with very, you know, uh, it, it's, it's nothing like as crowded a marketplace as, for example, trying to report on, you know, European issues or, or, or North America. Uh, so it, it makes it a, a, a really very sort of unique experience for a reporter. Uh, and I think that's why, that's why I love it so much. When did you first become aware of the, the scale of the mistreatment of the Uyghur people in northwest China. So I, I've been going to Xinjiang pretty much since I started in, in China in 2012. It's been clear to me uh, from the beginning that there was a really interesting story to tell there. And obviously, even at that point, there were indications of an intensifying uh, system of control. China had already begun uh, responding to what it saw as a, as a threat of, of militancy and violence from the Uyghur population and from other minorities. Um, we'd, of course, had the, the riots in Urumqi a few years prior to my arrival, um, in which you know, large numbers of people were killed. So that, that framework had already been set. And leaving all of that aside as well, of course, I mean, it is just a fascinating place. It, find, you know, it, it, it is the far northwest of China, it borders, of course, uh, a number of Central Asian countries. Uh, it has a border with Afghanistan, with Pakistan. You know, it is in, a, in an extraordinary part of the world, at this extraordinary crossroads between China, Asia and Europe beyond. And it is a key strategic and um, economically important uh, sort of policy priority for China. So for all of those reasons, you have to go to Xinjiang. You, you know, that was clear f f from the very start of my posting. Uh, in terms of the, you know, the, the, the story that has, of course, risen to global attention in, in recent years, um, the building of the camps and these far more repressive policies, uh, for me, the real, the, the first indication uh, that something uh, very significant was happening was uh, early twenty end of twenty seventeen early twenty eighteen when the first reports uh, began to arrive and then of course the real challenge as we began to get this sense that there was something you know really worth investigation investigating was was how were we going to set about doing it how do you start uh, to peel away the layers and try to tell the truth about a part of a country um, where the authorities really uh, don't want you to be digging around and uh, reporting things. I hope I'm getting my, my timings right here, John. But I mean, um, 
hadn't David Cameron been to visit that part of the um, China not that long before, or you know, so you know, was this were these camps almost hiding in plain sight, you know, in in the year or two before? Yes, your time timings are, timings are right, but uh, <laughs> wrong Tory. Uh, it was it, oh, it, George Osborne. <laughs> it was George Osborne, yeah. And actually, we went with him on that on that trip. So he was Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time. It was seen as um, you know very unusual to have a senior European politician travelling to Xinjiang. The concerns were, were were already you know being very well articulated by uh, people who uh, were you know by China watchers and and, and human rights organisations. Uh, and although we may not have known about the camps at that time, although there's some evidence to, to suggest that as early as 2015, 2016, uh, the camp system had begun to operate, we certainly did know about the imprisonment of, you know, prominent Uyghur intellectuals, uh, authors, people like Ilham Totti was in prison at the time of that visit. So that was a very controversial visit. And we went, um, you know, partly because it was so unusual and um, so that we could ask George Osborne and, and uh, put those questions to the British government. Of course, it was a very different time. We were still in what um, Britain and China referred to as the golden era. British visiting British politicians would say that, of course, they you know raised issues of concern, often best but done behind closed doors, you know where necessary, and uh, that they weren't afraid to ask those tough questions. But it, it's clear what the the priorities were, and of course, Ian. You know what's quite interesting about the, the time I've been in China is it's it's mapped almost exactly the time that Xi Jinping has been in office. Mm. You know, I arrived in March of of twenty twelve. Uh, by the end of that year, of course, he was already Communist Party General Secretary, and you know, uh, it, it, of course, that now with hindsight we know was a, was a a, a a moment, a sort of turning point in a way, uh, in terms of this shift towards a more authoritarian model. But it took us all, uh, you know, me included. I think uh, I think a bit of time to catch up with what that actually meant, uh, because the, the the in a way the narrative completely shifted. Up until then, I think most people looking in at China, uh, you know, there was a there, you know there was an optimist and pessimist debate about China's direction of travel, as there almost always is, you know, with developing countries, and the the sort of consensus was that trade and engagement with China would, um, however slowly and however uh, imperfectly, eventually. Uh, move the country towards political reform of some kind. Even if you didn't think uh, China was likely to have full democracy anytime soon, there was a sense that things were getting better. And I think based on that model, governments like the British governments and others uh, were interacting with, with China with that premise very firmly in mind. I think that consensus has completely shifted. I think you'll find very few people today who would argue that there are many signs of that. And if anything, uh, I think the consensus is one now that trade and engagement has, if anything, uh, simply allowed this admittedly very successful on many measures, this sort of prosperous authoritarianism to, to cement its position in the world very much on its own terms. We are turned back at checkpoints. We are paid, we are paid. Stopped from filming. We are paid. Questioned and followed. Going back to the story, you mentioned the challenges in reporting it. I mean, what what are the specific challenges in reporting this story about the the, the detention camps? Well, I suppose um, access, of course, uh, is the first. It, it is not easy to report in Xinjiang. As as uh, foreign journalists accredited to work in China. Technically, we're allowed to go there. It is different from um, from Tibet, 
uh, where you need a government permit, uh, and it's you know no, no journalists are able to go to Tibet independently. There are occasionally government-organized, very highly choreographed tours to Tibet, but Xinjiang's different. In 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 theory, you can get on a plane um, from Beijing and be in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang, depending on how you go, five, six, seven hours later, and you can travel around travel by train, hire a car and, um, you know, report. Uh, but of course, the reality is a, a long way from real freedom or, or anything approaching it. Uh, and, and it's got more and more pressured and intense as the years have gone on, certainly, that, certainly since I've been visiting. So, for example, you know, you will be followed almost from the moment, in fact, from the very moment you leave the airport by multiple cars, in our case, normally, you know, up to sort of half a dozen cars, perhaps more. And, and, they, were, they, and, they, and, and you, you will not be left alone until you get back on that plane and uh, leave the region. If you approach areas that are seen as red lines, if you try to film in uh, sensitive places, if you try to approach the camps, for example, you are often stopped. There's n numerous ways they do that. And uh, it can be pretty intense and on, on, on occasion quite threatening. So access is the first. Um, but, you know, very closely related to that, of course, the real, uh, I mean, it's a problem facing journalists uh, anywhere where stories are hidden or hard to reach is a question of evidence. How do you set about um, compiling credible, truthful journalism uh, under those sorts of um, conditions? And the answer for us has actually been, it's been an interesting one. I think, you know, the real key to unlocking the story of Xinjiang has been China's own official documentation. You can't run a system uh, of control in a modern, highly organised, digital uh, society like China without leaving some sort of footprint. And that's exactly what's happened. So uh, often with the help of academics and experts who, who uncover some of this stuff, as well as the work we've done ourselves, you know, the documents, the procurement documents, the contracts for building the camps, for supplying them, for recruiting for them, uh, the policy documents about, uh, you know, wider societal policies on education, uh, religion, all of these things are there. And what's been very interesting, I think, is, is although our, our reporting and, and other uh, foreign organ news organisations that have put this have come under um, sustained attack from the Chinese authorities who clearly do not like what we report, I think if you look at the actual, the, 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 that, that level of evidence, often in terms of the, the criticisms we've got, they are rarely on factual grounds, certainly where that evidence is, is concerned, because, as I say, it, it, these, are, these are China's own documents. And I guess in terms of getting first-hand accounts, John, social media has been important? Uh, no, you've sort of hit the nail on the head with the sort of real, the, the third difficulty, which is testimony. As journalists, of course, you always need it. It's vital to hear those human voices. In Xinjiang, that is impossible, uh, either, by, either through speaking to real people or social media, because, of course, the controls are so complete now in that region. First of all, to approach anybody, certainly uh, you know, uh, somebody uh, from these sort of target communities, Uyghurs, uh, the Kazakh community, uh, these, these mainly uh, sort of Muslim uh, communities who, who are being targeted by these, these policies, um, because their ethnicity and their culture and their faith is, is, is seen as inherently disloyal. 
to approach any of them and ask for an interview, given the, the huge surveillance you are under as journalists, uh, would almost certainly land them, if not in trouble, then under a huge amount of scrutiny themselves. And in fact, we see that even going into a, a shop to, you know, to buy a few bottles of water can be quite a difficult judgment because you know that shopkeeper will be debriefed after you've left. They'll want to know what the conversation is. I mean, more often than not, they'll come into the, your, your minders, the people following you, the plainclothes police will come into the shop with you. Restaurants the same. So to, to actually try to, to, to meet somebody, to get something you know real and human about their situation, the pressure they're under, the reality of their, their life, for good or for bad, is, is, as I say, as good as impossible. And for the same reason, social media is uh, it's essentially been completely tamed by the huge, uh, all-encompassing digital surveillance that China deploys in Xinjiang, which includes not just um, the remote monitoring of people's communications, but actual physical checks. Uh, you know, there are checkpoints set up where they will plug devices, these sort of um, phone vacuums, which will pull out the content and uh, people there have no, no choice but to submit. To, to, re to refuse those checks would, of course, itself be a signal of, of suspicion. So it is almost impossible for people to, uh, you know, for example, carrying an encrypted app on your phone is one of the key reasons for being detained in a camp. So you can imagine the chilling effect that has on the ability for people to use that kind of social media to communicate um, with anybody, let alone journalists. So for that stuff, it's been very hard. I mean, we have relied for our testimony on exiles, essentially. There was a period after the, you know, after 2015, 2016, perhaps as late as 2017, when some of those who had been through the early iterations of the camps were able to leave. That might seem remarkable. Uh, there was a slight policy shift. It's difficult to really fully understand what the thinking of the, th the authorities was at that time. But nonetheless, uh, some people who have been through the system managed to get out. A lot of Uyghurs go to places like Turkey, for example. There are strong uh, linguistic ties uh, as well as cultural ties to Turkey. So there's a big Uyghur uh, community there. We have used um, members of that community recently arrived who can tell us their own experiences. We've also been able to use those communities as a way of measuring the way that the Chinese authorities target uh, the family members of those exiles uh, who are still back in China. So if you have left China and you have a brother or sister, mother, father, or often son or daughter back in Xinjiang, um, the very fact of your leaving can bring suspicion on the remaining family members. And in fact, that is another very common reason for people to have been put in the camps. So again, through that exile community, as they have seen their loved ones disappear into this system, we've been able to use them for testimony. But it is, because of the controls, one of the most difficult parts of telling that story. And in recent years, of course, uh, leaving has become almost impossible. So given that picture you've painted for us, do you feel we're, we're just scratching the surface of this story or, or do you feel we, we have a we have a decent handle on what's actually going on in Xinjiang you know given the limitations I think we have an an extraordinarily detailed understanding of it and and you know with with our journalism and and and, and you know some of the other excellent journalism that's been done around this subject uh, our our desire always our motivation is to follow the evidence to be as truthful as we can you know, not only to not 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 only in the detail of what we report, but in the uh, you know in the sum of the facts, it, it should feel true as well from what we observe on the ground and from 
the testimony of these people we speak to, as well as being, you know, uh, verified through these sort of layers of evidence, the, the, the government documents, the satellite evidence, the independent uh, analysis, all of these things that we've um, used to sort of triangulate to, to, the, to the truth of what's going on. So, for example, I mean, I think things like the scale of the system, um, we do now have a very good handle on uh, on that side of things because, of course, the satellite data shows us how many uh, new highly securitized um, uh, facilities have been built uh, and over what time period. Some of the policy drivers behind it, we understand, again, because of the, the documents. There are dark parts of the system, we ourselves were invited into the camps, uh, to our surprise. Um, we'd already done a fair bit of reporting, um, which it was clear the Chinese authorities didn't like. I think at some point in 2018, they began this policy of, of taking journalists on tours. I think they felt, you know, they knew how high profile our reporting had been. And I think they felt that uh, they had already honed the narrative to the extent that perhaps, uh, you know, we were a kind of test case, maybe, I don't know. But anyway, we were invited in. Obviously, those sorts of trips present a certain number of journalistic challenges in and of themselves. You know, these are, these are trips arranged by the authorities. They want to deliver a certain message. It was quite clear that these were uh, show camps. We had, you know, we had no choice uh, in terms of we, we couldn't ask to be taken into particular camps. We were told the camps we were going to. Um, after the trip, we did try independently to visit other places, much to their horror. You know, when, when the trip finished, we had sort of two or three days with the officials. We went into four camps in total. And at the end of it, we said, look, we thank you very much. It's, it, uh, you know, it's been very interesting. Now we're off to continue our, our original plan. of, and, and they tried to persuade us not to. But it's clear when we tried independently to visit other camps that looked very different, that had, you know, f uh, far more security features around them, watchtowers, much more... Um, uh, high, highly secure, and we were stopped from doing so. We could, you know, we could clearly sense that there was a very uh, large difference with the the camps we had been shown. But um, you know, the interesting thing about you know even the show camps, by deploying all the techniques we could in terms of you know trying to cross-examine the the story we were being told by trying to hold the uh, the official narrative to account by pushing and pushing with the um, the officials in charge of the camps about questions about how free the students really were. And, and, and eventually we were able to reveal through that reporting that, in fact, despite um, the official narrative, there was an admission that these students weren't, in, of course, students in, in, in inverted commas, that's, the, that's the, the term China uses, these students weren't free in the normal sense of the word. We were told that they were they were considered guilty of a, of a kind of pre-crime. They had a propensity to, to to criminal acts, which is therefore they were they were being sort of put through this education for their for their own good. But again, you know, that gave us a, a, an extraordinary insight into you know, if you like, the sort of upper tier of the system. But what goes on beyond that inside the much, much larger, much more highly securitized facilities that we can only gaze at on the satellite pictures or attempt to sort of, you know, fleetingly film from a car as, as we're being sort of chased across the landscape. Uh, what happens inside those places, I think we have, uh, you know, far less knowledge of. It seems in the last couple of weeks, this story has moved into a different phase. And in particular, there's focus now on, on your reporting and that of other news organisations, but particularly the BBC's reporting of what's going on. How does that make you feel? And what 
are the responsibilities you feel as a BBC reporter that perhaps reporters from other news organisations might not feel or, you know, yeah, how have the last few days and weeks been for you and, and what are your concerns? Well, we, we, you're right. I, I mean, the, 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 um, the BBC has been under, under pressure um, as a result of our reporting uh, through uh, Chinese propaganda attacks uh, on our journalism, uh, you know, through, through official Chinese government channels as, as well. Of course, as we mentioned earlier, I mean, this isn't new. This pressure has always been there. We are not uh, unique, um, even if we find ourselves, at, you know, perhaps in, in slightly sharper focus in, in recent months. But the truth is the space for, for foreign journalism, which was always constricted in China, has been shrinking now, uh, I would argue, rapidly over, the, over say, the, um, the past 12 to 18 months, maybe a, a slightly longer time scale. But no doubt about it, it is getting more difficult. There were the expulsions of a number of, um, in fact, most American journalists in China last year in a sort of tit-for-tat sort of political retaliation, but all clearly linked to this, this idea that the sort of independent reporting of the kind that the BBC does, but not, not uniquely. I mean, as I mentioned, there, there, there has been a huge amount of really very important, brilliant journalism done by a range of news organisations based in China, at great risk often to, to those involved, particularly local staff. And I think what we are seeing is, is in part uh, a reflection of, uh, you know, the realisation from China of the, not, not only the damage that, it, that this sort of independent journalism and the exposure of what's happening is doing on the international stage, but also it's, it, it's difficulty in controlling it. And I think as well it's linked to the shift. So, you know, there was a time when people would argue that China tolerated uh, the foreign press because it, it was an important sort of fig leaf, if you like, it, um, for, for a, 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 a giant rising, as I say, prosperous authoritarianism, which relied on foreign investment and exports and uh, industry exchanges with all sorts of countries. You you needed uh, one f- uh, for good sort of functionary reasons of of market information and a certain kind of sort of press freedom to to, to facilitate some of some of that side of the economy, but also for political reasons. The idea of having the BBC, you know, the New York Times um, and, and many others in China gave an appearance of openness and that they would therefore tolerate the downside of that. They, they, would, they, they knew that occasionally there would be reports that sort of uh, shone lights in places they didn't want them to be shone, etc., etc. But I wonder if that, that is shifting now and there is a calculation that, particularly in the era of Trump, I have to say, where uh, China has sometimes found itself echoing the sorts of attacks we have heard on on the free press in other parts of the world. And I wonder if it's decided itself now that that kind of quid pro quo, that sort of grand bargain of allowing the press in, perhaps isn't as important as it used to be. And I think we as journalists are paying the price. The disaster, of course, for global audiences is that good information, trustworthy information out of China... It, it has never been at a higher premium. We need to know what is happening here. We need to know the direction of travel. We need to understand about the politics. At the best of times, it was difficult, but the space is shrinking so rapidly. I think we all all need to be really very concerned about um, what it's going to mean in a world where that information uh, is close to drying up. China used to deny that these places exist. 
But now we're being given a tour. The message? These are schools, not prisons. But the more we ask, have you been convicted of a crime? How often are you able to pray here? The more evidence we try to gather of our own, the more questions there are. What, what, what's your worst fear and what's your, what's your greatest hope in terms of what direction this story could go in? My, my feeling about my, my purpose here is, is of course, you know, and I, I think one that anybody who's interested in, in journalism w would recognise, which is, you know, I don't see myself as somebody with agency. I don't uh, see myself as a campaign. Uh, I see myself as somebody who simply wants to report as accurately and as fairly and as truthfully as I can what is happening. Now, you know, does that mean I'm, I'm totally neutral on all things? I, I mean... To, to be part of a free press, of course you uh, feel a strong allegiance to values like freedom of speech as, as, a, you know, as an inherent good. And that, of course, frames your perspective. But these are universal human values that China itself signs up to th through, through various international charters. So, you know, in that sense, as, a, as, a, as somebody, not to sound too grandiose, but who, who, who wants to tell the truth, my hope is that we can continue to do that. I mean, it's for other, it's, you know, it's for the international community and people who uh, engage with China politically to decide uh, what should be done on a policy level about the truths that are revealed by me and other, other reporting colleagues in, in China. Um, I very much hope that can continue because I think ultimately, you know, China is a, a, a really fascinating place, in as we mentioned at the beginning. And I think sometimes there's a question of, a, a sort of deep misunderstanding, particularly from some of those who are critical of our reporting, not just the Chinese authorities, but some of those outside of China, who, who look at uh, the two aspects of China and and sort of struggle to see how 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 they can coexist. So so let me just uh, give you a little bit of a clearer sense of what I mean by that. I mean, I mean arriving in China, and I felt this very much myself back in 2012. You are bowled over by the obvious successes of this economy and this society and the huge changes, the massively uh, sort of rapid uh, shift that has taken place over the last few decades and is still very much in train. You know, the skyscrapers on the Shanghai skyline, the, the bustling streets of Beijing, the expensive cars, the sense of sort of prosperity, the high-speed railway lines, the data showing the numbers of people moving into the middle classes. All of this, of course, uh, is loudly championed by the Chinese government and to some extent rightly so of course and some people look at that and think well particularly on arrival how does this square with this sort of sense I have when I read John Sudworth's journalism or or, or, or a piece in the Washington Post or whatever it might be that that paints this picture of this very dark authoritarian place and of course I, I think we use as our framework um, sort of recent examples where, you know, if you look at uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, there's this sense that uh, that was a decaying disaster of an economic model uh, and that therefore the, uh, the authoritarianism and the, the grim economic reality went hand in hand. But we also know from uh, other historical examples that it is quite possible to be a, uh, a, a remarkably successful, rising, prosperous superpower. If you look at 1930s Germany, 
we were having the same debates. You know, there were people who were who were proclaiming the the, the remarkable economic success of this, uh, you know, of, of, of Germany's return to global prominence, of the ability to sell General Motors cars to prosperous Germans, of the uh, how beautiful and wonderful wonderfully the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra played. Uh, you know, the the remarkable cultural strengths of this of this nation that, were, that was reclaiming its rightful place, and of course there were the same. Uh, reports being sent back about a, a growing network of labour camps, uh, about a growing repression uh, of various groups based on ethnicity. Now, I don't say any of that to make a sort of deterministic, uh, you know, I'm not a, an, an historical determinist. I, I, I'm not suggesting that China is Nazi Germany, but I'm just saying that for us, we need to remember that you can be both prosperous and problematic. In fact, all societies are, and the job of journalists, wherever they are, be it Britain or Beijing, isn't to celebrate and champion the successes, but it's to look and hold power to account, to try to find in, in democratic countries where the promises are broken, for example. And here in China, it's to look uh, at the reality for the, the voiceless, the people without a democratic say, and to try to articulate their experience as truthfully as we can. And there can be no better example of people who need us to do that story for them than the people who live in Xinjiang, of course. And I think, it, it, if, if anything, you ask me where, where I'd like this to go, I mean, I hope people can have a better understanding of how the two things can be true at the same time. One does not negate the other, and allow us to, to consider in a more complex way what we do about it. Because, of course, uh, we cannot wish China out of this world. Nobody, to look at that historical example, nobody would, would wish for the, the growing tensions with China to, to lead to real conflict. Uh, you know, that would be a disaster from which, um, you know, uh, many of us may, may not emerge. I mean, it, it, it's unthinkable, of course. So, you know, I think the big questions are, what do we do about it? And the more people who can be here in China telling the truth, I think the better informed policymakers and publics around the world can be. If you wouldn't mind just thinking about your own practice, what have you learned by doing this story, through doing this story? What have you learned about your own practice as a journalist? The, 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 the thing I've learned from it is that ultimately, particularly for broadcast journalists and for an organisation like the BBC, you know, we live in an age now where information is cheap, of course. The, the, the idea of broadcasters or any news organisation having a kind of monopoly on the airwaves or taking our audiences for granted has long gone. And really, you know, as we know, often to the cost of democratic debate and, and the free exchange of good information, everybody is a journalist nowadays. Everybody's on Twitter. Everybody's got their, everybody, everybody's there before, before the journalists are. You know, the, 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 there is nothing or, or no, no story, no place that we won't be beaten to by the people who are already there. And that is a huge challenge for journalists. And I think the one thing I've learned from being here is there is no substitute for looking, for trying to find out. The idea of it being enough nowadays for us to say, on the one hand, human rights organisations say this, on the other hand, China says that. We need to go and find out. We need to go and be, be able to tell our audiences the truth. We need to make those difficult editorial judgments sometimes. You know, we need to roll up our sleeves and, and, and get out there. And I, I mean, that's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that's a unique perspective. But I think the real lesson is, although that seems, you know, it can seem obvious to want to do that in China because the story is so important here and so hidden and therefore the, the incentives are there to go and look for it. I think we should be, we should be all, all of us, looking to sharpen our game wherever 
uh, we're based. And I think often, you know, if you look at the debate over things like Brexit and institutional bias of, of journalists in our home countries, I think sometimes the assumption that we can just sort of be commentators rather than people actually go and find out the the, the real truth is a, is, a, is a dangerous one. And the organisations that are likely to survive uh, this new digital media age are, are going to be the ones who who work the hardest at telling news, as in looking for new stuff and finding things out. It's an obvious thing to say, but I think if I've learned anything from China, it would be, it would be something along those lines. You know, I've been very lucky to have learned my journalism through the BBC. Uh, I began in, in, in local radio reporting, where every day at Radio Cornwall, you know, my very first beat, my very first patch, uh, I was expected to turn round two stories from the Liscard office every day. And you started with a blank sheet of paper in the morning and off you went. And I, I think the, the days of wanting to go into journalism because you want to be on telly, and I, you know, I'm not suggesting that, that you, you know, uh, I don't mean that in a, in a sort of superior way. It, it's it, it's um, everybody's on telly nowadays, right? I mean, it's there's no there's no there's nothing unique left in that. The only motivation, surely, is because you want to you, you know you you are interested in finding stuff out and telling something important about your local community, your country, your continent, your or, or the patch you get sent to, be it China or. Uh, wherever else it might be in the world. So the skills you need are the same. And I think it's, a, it's, it's simply a desire to want to tell people's stories as truthfully and as honestly as you can without fear or favour, you know, without the instructions of your own editors, without the uh, interference of the authorities, and to let nothing get in the way of telling that truth. If that, if that to you sounds like a, a great way to spend your life, and it's not always easy, uh, but th- when, when you do hit the nail on the head and you, and you get that story... Um, there is nothing else like it on, on the planet for me. Uh, if that for you feels like the thing you, 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 you want to spend your life doing, then you've probably already made a very good start. You mentioned, for instance, you, you're frequently followed. You, you've always got minders, John. What are some of the softer skills maybe that you've learned that can come in handy when you are just trying to navigate your way through this kind of opposition? Yes, well, I would say if you ever do have the misfortune of of, of finding yourself uh, being stopped from filming something you you want to point your camera at by a, a plain clothes uh, Chinese policeman, then the thing I always try to keep in mind is uh, to try to sort of restrain my 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 sort of inner indignant Englishman. Confrontation is never going to uh, end well. So somehow you need to get the right sort of balance between persistence and restraint. And it's, uh, it's something you, you know, you do have to kind of learn on the job because at times you've got to um, stick up for your rights, but, it, but you've got to do it in, in the right kind of way. And it's constantly about sort of, you know, if you're not getting it this way, perhaps retreat, reevaluate, look at other options. Uh, and to continue to be strategic about it. But, the, you know, the truth is where people are trying to stop you telling the story, it is a good indicator that you are telling the right story. You just need to use that as inspiration to, uh, to look for better ways. What advice would you have for Chinese journalists in these times? The, the foreign media in China uh, relies massively 
on uh, they're called news assistants here under the Chinese system, uh, but they're you know uh, it is their journalism ultimately. Uh, their abilities to, to, to do much of what I've just spoken about, to be interested in telling a story and telling it well, that makes the reporting of all foreign organisations here what it is. We, we you know, couldn't do the job without, without them. China knows it. They are also under a lot of pressure and they deserve our wholehearted support and, and much more thought about, uh, about what that means. It's worth saying as well, of course, that there are state media journalists um, and parts of uh, the Chinese state media uh, landscape where, or, or state-controlled landscape where people are doing journalism, real journalism. And, and again, the space is narrowing, the controls are growing, but you know, it is sometimes, again, through journalists working for publications like Tsai Xin, who, who are often doing the groundbreaking work. If you look back at some of the work they did over, uh, over the, 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 sort of the first outbreak in Wuhan, there, there is still occasionally... Uh, real room for them to change the narrative and to and to deliver something really very meaningful. So, I, I suppose if if you are worried about the controls on Chinese journalists and what it might mean, I would suggest that it is not a hopeless situation at all. There there are opportunities out there, but it, it's it's difficult. And the you know the story of the last few years should tell us all that we should be very very worried, in general, about the ability of of all journalists to tell the news that matters out of China.